Hello, this is Larry Van Mersbergen, host of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. What you're about to hear was the live podcast we recorded at Chicago TARDIS 2019. And as always, sometimes in live recordings, things don't always go well as planned. A speaker didn't work, and we weren't even sure we were being recorded, but it turned out well. Please enjoy. Also, the bonus audio clip at the end of the episode is a little bit from Doctor Who The Myth Makers, Part 1. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Tony Whit with the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the podcast in which we undertake the insert adjective here task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm joined by Dalton Hughes and by Allison Fitzsafry. And we record our episodes twice a month. You're listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Enjoy your travels. to the, the Doctor, Doctor Who Collectors, Collectors Podcast, live at Chicago TARDIS 2019. The 20th year. Thank you. The 20th year for this amazing convention. I am Larry Van Mersburg, and your host, and I've been collecting Doctor Who since 1981. In 1985, I had this rather crazy idea of opening a Doctor Who store, which was crazy in two ways. Number one, I was 15 years old. I couldn't drive anywhere, and two, I had no money to start such a thing. But I did it anyway, and it was called Bundles from Britain. And it lasted until 1989 when I sold it back to my partner, who quietly buried the business and opened a new one called Alien Entertainment. So, many years later, I discovered that this was a very important part of Doctor Who history, and we ended up in a little book called Red, White, and Who, The History of Doctor Who in America, and you can find Bundles from Britain on page 384. And no, I did not submit it to the book. I had no idea it was being written at the time. So please buy the book. It's available at Alien Entertainment from ATV Publishing. My guests today include David J. Howe, author of many Doctor Who-related books, including books as The Target Book and The 80s, along with many others. He is also the curator of the Doctor Who Merchandise Museum, so we'll definitely want to talk to him. His wife, Samantha Stone, is here as well. She is a novelist, editor, short story writer, radio host, and a playwright. She's also an editor at Telos Publishing. Also here with me is Tony Witt, the host and producer of the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast and acting as my audio engineer today. So please, uh, we're happy to hear. And those of you in our audience today, we'd love to hear your collection stories. Our theme song is Who's Doctor Who? by Barry Mason and Les Reed, performed by our favorite actor, Fraser Hines, who played Jamie McCrimmon in over 113 Doctor Who episodes. Also want to talk a minute about our Patreon page. At Doctor Who Collect, uh, patreon.com backslash Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, we would like to thank you for your support and ask if you can contribute as much as $5. We would love to have your contributions. Producing a podcast takes more than just effort and talent. Also, we are a proud member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. You can find out some of the best 
Doctor Who Podcasts at DoctorWhoPodcastAlliance.org. Sad, man, isn't it? People spend all that time making nice things, and other people come along and break them. Collection protection. <laughs> I have a very rare item in my collection in the Who Room, which doesn't quite fit the norm. As you can see, plastic bags work great for books. But what if you collect a board game or a large boxed item that a bag simply wouldn't protect? I have here the Doctor Who Give a Show Projector by Chad Valley from 1965. As you can see, it wouldn't quite fit in a bag. But I want to take a moment to tell you about a great product from a place called Really Useful Products. Great name for a place, right? They make these boxes. They're, they're made of plastic, they're waterproof, and it fits the Doctor Who Give a Show projector perfectly, as I will demonstrate. <laughs> so, and like all good products, it's made in the UK. So you can find them at reallyuselproducts.uk backslash US. They have a distribution facility in the Chicago area. And you can find out more. I have some information if you're interested. So again, collection protection. If you have any collection protection stories, please write to us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast or at our email at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget our website at DoctorWhoCollectors.com. On to the main story. David J. Howe is here. David, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you for being here. Tell us about the Doctor Who Memorabilia Museum that you are the curator of. <laughs> oh, good. It's a long story. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, where do I even start? So, I've been collecting stuff since the early 70s, um, basically. Um, obviously, got together a large, a large amount of, of items. I collect everything that's kind of Doctor Who related, so you know if it's got Doctor Who on it, I'll, I'll have it. So I don't specialise in any particular thing like board games or books or magazines or something. I've kind of tried to collect everything. Um, and so over the years, the collection's just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown, and, grown and it's pretty vast now. And um, we were looking, we wanted to kind of... We were keeping it all basically in a room in the house, weren't we? Yes. Um, we were keeping it all, it's my wife. Um, <laughs> keeping it all in a room in the house, and uh, we were basically sort of starting to outgrow it again, as, as, as often happens. So we, we looked around for somewhere where we might be able to expand even further and actually display it all properly. Because one of the issues is, is, you know, if you keep it all in a room in the house, it's all, you know, bundled in cupboards and, right, and right. stacked like Jenga-wise to you know, maximise the amount that you can fit in. So, so if somebody comes and says, oh, have you got such and such and such, you kind of go, yes, I have, but I have no idea where it is, and I can't get at it, um, which gets very frustrating. Um, so we wanted to try and find somewhere where we could um, expand and do. So about four years ago, um, nearly five years ago now, uh, we, we bought a, a property which had a lovely big um, storage unit kind of associated with it. Um, and... Then over the last four years or so, we, we've kind of been kitting it out, re-kind of doing it, trying to turn it into something that I could sort of more permanently display all of uh, the merchandise that I've got um, with a kind of eventual aim 
of being able to use that as, as basically the Doctor Who Merchandise Museum. Um, the idea was it, it, it'll be a private museum, so it's, you can't just sort of rock up and go and look at it any time you like. Um, but we'd have some kind of booking facility where people could phone up or send an email or something and say, hey, I'm going to be in the area, could we come and look on such and such a day at such and such a time? And then obviously if that's convenient, then yeah, sure, of course you can, and we'll, I'll show people around. That was the idea. Um, everything was going swimmingly. Um, it was all good. Everything was great. Until about a month ago. Um, when Lincolnshire, which is where we live, has been hit by basically torrential rain over the whole area since the end of August. And basically the museum's flooded three times now. Um, we've had two inches of water across the entire floor. And basically we're just kind of, everything's been now moved off the shelves again, lower shelves, trying to keep it safe. Um, but obviously it's and been you have no idea how long it took to get them on the shelves no, in the exactly. first place. And now <laughs> it took four years to get it on the shelves. Um, yeah. So basically at the moment we're kind of in a bit of a quandary because we don't know what to do. Um, effectively the water table just rose. It's not coming in from outside uh, above or the sides. It's basically coming up through the floor. Um, so we don't know what to do. Um, so I'm not worrying about it. We came out here um, not quite knowing what state it's going to be in when we get back because it might flood again. Because uh, it's still raining, and um, I'm not going to worry about it till January because I, I kind of don't want to stress stressed out Christmas and stuff. So we'll get back, we'll talk Christmas out and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where it all is. And I don't know, as Sam said, I don't. We just don't know what we're going to do next year. Um, we don't know if or how to do it. There's a million different options from selling the whole lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, selling and moving somewhere else, trying to find somewhere else, um, reducing the aspiration and just having it as like a summer museum and put it all away when the yeah, rains start every winter is a possibility. Um, just keeping certain bits. I just don't know at this point. It's very depressing, uh, very, very upsetting. Um, so far, we've not lost anything particularly significant from the, the Doctor Museum. The first time it flooded, um, the, the casualty was the Berwick, the 60s Berwick uh, Dalek playsuit box, which was standing on the floor. And so that got water all up in it. Um, luckily, the suit itself is all plastic and stuff, so that, that was all fine. Um, so we, we brought the box in the house and dried it all out. It seems all okay. It's got a water stain on it now, but, you know, it wasn't in the greatest condition in the first place. Right. So I was defining condition. Yes. <laughs> Things are, are of these, this kind of age. Um, so that's okay. Um, the, the latest thing that... A couple of other casualties. Um, I had a pretty much mint condition box of the goodies, um, chocolate sweets, white chocolate sweets, which was in a long kind of a box about so big uh, with about five different, a plastic thing with five different things in. Um, that basically rotted away. Um, it grew fungus all over it. Had to go. And had to go. Um, we've also lost a fair amount of stuff to mice where the mice have eaten all of my Easter eggs and all of my advent calendars and basically destroyed anything that was chocolate um, in the museum. So that, that was a bit frustrating. And, and it's it, a bit hard to avoid mice when you, you live in the mice. middle of yeah. the countryside. So um, they're going to get in. And, and the, latest, the latest thing was that one of the things I hadn't yet been able to put out in the museum was the figurine collection. You know, the thing they're doing currently. There's about 150 or more, 60, something they're up to. Right, right. Um, so the figurine collection was all, all in a great big pile in boxes. And, of course, the water got into it from underneath. 
So a number of the boxes have been water damaged, um, but that's not so bad because the figurines themselves are resin, they're, they're mm -hmm. right. Um, but, but I lost a stack of the magazines, just got saturated, So and I don't even know what numbers they were because when they threw them out, they didn't tell me what numbers they'd thrown out. To be honest, he didn't, he didn't really want to look at that no, point. <laughs> so we're like, depressing. this has to go. Um, what's behind the, yeah. the manufacture of the original prop as well as the figurine itself. So. Yeah, so a few people have been asking me over the last, because we were at Long Island last weekend as well, um, and this convention, what, what's happening, and that's basically what's happening. It's all very depressing. Um, we're right in the middle of it, and we just don't know where it's going to go or, or how we're going to try and recover from this. So, um, there you go, Larry. Oh, you didn't want depressing. to hear that, did you, all well, that depressing news? I, I mean, <laughs> on, the, on the converse, before all this happened, we were hoping to open it next this summer, next next year's summer. <laughs> but, uh, from, a, from a collector that keeps his collection in the basement, I worry about water yeah. constantly, and unfortunately, that's the, the number one uh, uh, thing that damages uh, both wood, plastic, and uh, and cardboard and paper. Um, yep. My goodness. Um, just, a, just a question about in the collection. What do you consider to be the most valuable piece in the museum? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, people ask me things like that, and I, honestly, I, I have no idea. I, I, think, what do you I think, think it's your Trojan horse. Oh, my Trojan horse. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Tell us about the Trojan horse. Yeah. Um, so the Trojan horse is uh, an original prop. Um, from the Doctor Who story, The Myth Makers, um, way back in the day. And it was given to me by the designer, John Wood, when I interviewed him for the frame sometime in the 90s. And he had it in his garage, and he just said, oh, I've got something you might like. And we just went out there, and he pulled an old bike away and blew dust off it. And then there was the, the Trojan horse was literally standing there. It, it, it stands about two foot high and three foot big. It's big. Trojan all made of wood, and yeah, yeah it's the original prop from the story wow. that was that was handmade by John um, for it. So that's rather nice to have. Um, yeah, so that's probably worth. Okay, something. oh, I would say so. Um, usually, props from the series, if they can be authenticated or at least, you know, in this case, provided by the original designer, yeah, you know, can fetch quite a sum. Yeah, um, very, very amazing. Uh, just been personally, how long have you been collecting Doctor Who? Um, I think I mentioned that up top. Uh, oh, sure. Since the early, early 70s, um, okay. I, I started collecting Doctor Who stuff, really by dint of not throwing things away. Um, I think probably the, probably the earliest thing that I've got that I didn't throw away was the piccolo making of Doctor Who book, um, which was the first ever factual book about Doctor Who, a proper factual book about Doctor Who that came out. Um, so I've still got my original copy of that. And I've got things like the, the John Pertwee um, chocolate bar wrappers. Oh, yes, yes. came out, Weetabix figures. The Weetabix, yes. Um, yeah. Things like that. And the Target books, of course. Um, yes, yes. 73 that I, I collected and, and, and again kept. And I think my Radio Times cutting start at Monstro Peladon. Mm. So I started cutting stuff out of the Radio Times on, on Monstro Peladon. And I started recording off the television from Robot mm. onwards. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of carried on picking up and collecting stuff as I saw it, as it came out, um, and slowly started to build up the old collection. 
And that's how a museum is, uh, yeah. is formed. Um, thank you, David. Samantha Stone, great to see you here. Hi. And um, finally, great She's to meet you. She's again. Only water. <laughs> Only water. It's, it's funny because I think I became Facebook friends with Samantha and then later David, so we became um, well acquainted. But uh, tell, us, tell us about your work with the Doctor Who related stories that you've uh, written. And uh, one in particular I have here, the uh, Olive Hawthorne's uh, uh, the Demons of Devil's End. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't right. have an actual copy. I have the, the, the cover here because I guess they sold out. Is that right? We did. Yeah. <laughs> we did sell out. Um, well, it was uh, back in, I think, 2010. Was it 2010? Ish. Ish. Um, that, um, Keith Barnfather approached David and said to him, I want to do um, a screenplay, which is a spin-off, using Olive Hawthorne from The Demons, uh, John Pertwee era. Uh, Olive Hawthorne was the white the witch, in case um, you haven't, if you're Yeah, the white witch. There. Yeah. And um, so I actually... I think anyone who doesn't know that who's listening should sort of turn off now. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll find you another podcast. We'll find another to, podcast. And, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, Doctor. So no at, that, at that point, I, I'd never met Keith. Um, David and I had only just re well got together about a year or so before that, and we were living together in, in Wales, North Wales at the time. And David was so busy he couldn't take the project on. So he said to him, "Look, you know, look, my girlfriend is, um, you know, she's a writer. She's capable of." doing this and so I had some communication with uh, Keith suggested to him that perhaps because Damaris was quite aged at that point she's now 19 she's still going strong this is great um, and suggested that we did it sort of have you ever heard of a guy called Alan Bennett it's English writer he did a thing called talking heads so I said let's do it talking heads style because it couldn't be too action based for Damaris so, so the idea of talking heads just quickly to fill that in yeah. is that Alan Bennett wrote a series of television plays I suppose you describe them as but the idea was that each play just featured one actor or actress yeah. and it was literally just them telling a story to the camera so it basically that, a dramatic monologue that, so a dramatic yeah. monologue basically um, and I can't remember the people he had doing it but it was like you know like Derek Jacobi Julia Walters, Julie Walters, yeah, you know, big, big, big. Patricia Routledge did English one as well. Stars yes. were, yes. were doing yes. it all. Maureen Lipman, perhaps. Um, I think she did. People yeah. like that. Um, he's got, he's got, so we, so we thought, well, given that you know Damaris isn't going to go running up and down roads and hills, and no, she left, couldn't right, action it out. So um, the easiest thing to do was to have her telling the stories. So the whole thing then developed. I sort of devised an overall story arc of what kind of stories we were going to have chatted to Damaris on the phone quite a lot about it um, because she had some ideas of what she wanted to do and we decided that we would take it from her, her age then as a, an aged witch who was looking after Devil's End um, and, um, and it would be her relaying stories of other things that had happened before and after the demons basically so it worked all around that and when Keith said to us let's do a 60 minute drama so all of us writers, I, uh, David and I, it was meant to be 60 originally, yeah. So it was like 10 minutes each. We, we decided to use six writers, myself and David included. And, um, and we were going to do a 10-minute monologue each, basically, which would equate to a different story. Um, however, when it came to filming that, <laughs> it, it actually grew a lot longer. Nobody had really accounted for how... Damaris would deliver the lines, if you like. So although we'd all read them out loud, we all read a little bit faster than her. So the whole thing was a lot bigger. And so that when they filmed it, it became something like two and two and a half hours worth 
And so Keith later on decided that he would turn this into a six-part drama, which is what he didn't, and it's all the better for it, actually. Uh, and that was The White Witch of Devil's End was born, which um, later on David and I then novelised it, mm -hmm. and, and some of the other writers, we all novelised our own story, and it became a short story collection as well in this format. Yes, and those of you at home, I'm holding up a picture of the cover, but I will have a, there is a copy on the Facebook page and on the website. Uh, and right now, I just want to bring Tony Wood in here because this was discussed on your episode um, regarding the demons, I believe. Yes. So uh, Tony Wood is the host and producer of the Target Book Club podcast, and I've had the honor of appearing on two of those episodes. And I do remember listening very intently to the demons. Uh, a good friend of ours, Jennifer Picker, was uh, talking about uh, oh, yeah. the, um, yeah. the, this book. So Tony, uh, tell us about that episode and how that kind of ties in. Um, well, essentially, all we do on the podcast is talk about the Target books and the, um, the way they're written how they how they stack up against the televised episode and so on. Jennifer had some wonderful insights into that as well. And then when we heard that she was still alive and the character was still continuing, yeah. we were very excited and we thought, you know, once we get there, we should do this as a proper target novelization and talk about it on the program because mm -hmm. it really does count in the sort of thing that we look at. Yes, definitely. Yes. And, and just uh, just to ask you, Tony, yourself, do you have a, a valuable collectible that you have, and how did you acquire it? Well, I have two that are particularly collectible. Um, one you told me about. I didn't even realize just how rare that thing was ah. until you pointed it out. It is Super 8 um, movie yeah. of uh, the, the Super 8 uh, version of the Peter Cushing movie. Was it, was it the first one or the Dalek Invasion Earth? It's Dalek's Invasion yeah, Earth. Yeah, Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that could be um, purchased from Lion Entertainment was a Super 8, which for those millennials out there, that's actual film. It threads through a projector and shown on a screen. Um, I think it had sound as well. So, it did. Uh, and and so I, got hold of I think the entire set was eight discs, eight films to do the entire movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're extremely rare to find them in any condition or especially working condition. Mm -hmm. But absolutely. And, and Samantha, I forgot to ask you, do you have yourself any personal Doctor Who collectibles aside from what David has in the collection or I, part I, of that collection? Uh, only, only me. Only him, yeah. <laughs> Um, I do have, I, I've got a thing for the Warlord um, little minifigures. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so when we go and visit there, I always end up snaffling a few of them. I've got little quarks, and, quarks and I like the, um, <laughs> the clockwork monsters from uh, the Madame Pompadour story. I've got a few of those, and I, I sit and paint them sometimes, so I, I really like them. Yeah, I like curly. those. I really like those sorts of Just things. I, I mean, like little it, things. It, interestingly, about the the White Witch um, book sure. that Telos published, um, because we we deliberately decided to do um, the novelization as what I describe as a targeter-like edition. Um, so the cover that um, Larry was holding up there and stuff—that's the actual cover of the targeter-like edition. So we commissioned Andrew Mark Thompson, who is an absolutely brilliant graphic designer who does a lot of kind of fake covers and stuff on, online. And you're sh I'm sure people can find his work. I think he's a genius. Um, did us some beautiful kind of Chris Achillosi-esque homage type cover for it. Uh, and I basically designed the whole of the cover and the whole of the inside of the book to match um, the original Target edition of The Demons. So the fonts all matched, everything all matched in the books. 
um, even down to, um, if, you, if you look very carefully at the original target books, you'll see on the bottom of the 33rd page and then every 32 pages thereafter, you'll find the initials of the book um, with a hyphen B, C, D, E, which are the um, section, section identifiers for the books in old-style printing. Uh, when they used to put them together. So we also put section identifiers in the book oh, as even well. Though you don't need them. Uh, even though it's digitally yeah. printed, it's completely relevant. Uh, we still put them in the book. Um, so that was just a nice conceit to do um, an edition which kind of completely matched the target editions. So the target logo we use has Telos written under it. Yes, rather than I target. have a question about that then. Sure. For authenticity, did you also at some point put an asterisk? And at the bottom, say, see Doctor Who and the Demons? We didn't, we didn't, I don't think we did that specifically, but uh, certainly all of the, um, the section breaks in the book are done with three or five asterisks spread out. Um, the hyphens are great big long ones and stuff like that. So we, we matched as best we could exactly what was going on. And we've done exactly the same um, with the two other novelizations we've done of um, Deimos Rising, which was my sequel to um, The Demons that came out in 2004. And the novelization also includes Olive Hawthorne, and it, it, it's got lots of other stuff in it as well. And also the novelization of Sill and the Devil's Seeds of Arador, which is a production that's yeah. literally just come out. So again, both of those have got target-alike editions. And we're going to continue this, and we want to do there more of these target-alike things that, Some which that, we might be writing that match too. with the target book, so you can slot <laughs> them in your shelf, and hopefully it will all work and everything. And we've even got coloured spines, and I, I was found myself innocently wondering the other day if the coloured spines would fade the same way that the actual target <laughs> edition spines have faded over time and changed colour. And I thought, you know, these could be completely genuine. Oh, that would um, be great. <laughs> I, I have lots of target paperbacks where you can't read the spine yeah. at all anymore. Yeah, quite, quite. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had a lot of fun with that, and it's nice creating something that's a, a, sort of like an homage to, you know, something like the target books, because they're so iconic and so wonderful. I mean, the only way in which they really differ is that we have a full-color photo section in them, which, of course, the target books didn't, didn't right. tend to have. So, um, but I thought, oh, well, that's, that's, that's not too bad. Strikes again, I'll have to stay for that one. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we well, do our best. Well, it was a best. nice little extra, yeah. so it was good. Yeah, yeah. but we, tro we tried very hard. Uh, we yeah. tried very hard to match it with the, that original edition of the Demons. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's good fun. Mm -hmm. What's that All mean? done very quiet. My, <laughs> on my head, we got a sound. A sound that was supposed to happen, but let's try it again here. Boing. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectibles broadcast. Oh, my speaker, my speaker must have gone out. Oh, there we go. Now we'll, we'll try that again this time. Oh, come on. This always happens during a live taping. It's been a weekend for that sort of thing. Money? My dear chef, I don't want money. I've got no use for the stuff. And that signals it's the time for my favorite part of the program, which is the most outrageous offer for a Doctor Who item. And to make this one special, it's a book from Telos Publishing. Oh. Uh, we find this book uh, offered by Book Rescue from West, City, West Valley City, Utah, and they offer a copy of Doctor Who, Eye of the Tiger by Paul McCauley. Oh, yes. And are you ready? Uh, for one thing, the reasonable part about this price is that the shipping is only $4.35. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but if you want to buy it, it's $3,998.04. Wow. wow. But which edition of Eye of the Tiger is that? <laughs> it doesn't say. That's what's ah, interesting. It says, uh, it says here, ex-library book with stickers and stampings. Okay. So um, wow. I thought, 
okay, that's got to be crazy. So I looked again, and eBay turned up a copy of the same exact book without any other description for $57.14. Sounds more like it. So that looks to me, yeah. I'm looking at because there's, sure. there's a little picture here. This is great radio, isn't it? Um, I know. That, that, yeah. that looks to me like... Um, this the, will be on the website. Don't that worry. looks to me like the standard edition. So we did three editions of uh -huh. that, that, that book, Eye of the Tiger, uh, spelt with a Y by Paul McCauley. Um, when we did the novellas, uh, the Doctor Who novellas, we decided that every novella we were going to have a standard edition, um, which had no particular frills or anything. Right. It was they're all hardbacks, but it just had a normal hardback cover, um, and it was just the basic book. And we did those for ten pounds. So I don't know what that is in dollars, fifteen dollars, seventeen dollars at the moment, something like that. Um, so they were ten pounds at the time. Um, we also did a deluxe edition mm -hmm. of each of each of the books. Um, and those differed in that they had a, a stamp on the front cover. There was like an indent stamp on the front cover. They also had a tipped-in signature sheet. So they were signed by the author, by the person who wrote the foreword. And the book also had a tipped-in art sheet, art page. And they were also signed by the artist. Um, and they were £25 each. So that was, um, what, so $30-ish, something like that these days. Um, but for Eye of the Tiger, because that was actually the mm -hmm. 40th, 50th, 30th, I've lost track, whichever anniversary edition it was, 25th it might be, uh, anniversary edition it was, we also did a further edition of that book, um, which was slip-cased. Ah. It was a mm -hmm. slip-cased edition, um, and it had, and I'm trying to remember, it had an additional five art pages tipped into it but so it actually had six art pages tipped into the book yeah um it was signed by all of those artists as well as um the author and the um and the the, the writer and it was limited to 40 copies i think it was the 40th anniversary it was limited to 40 copies only Mm -hmm. um, and I think we sold those for £50 each at the time, and they sold out almost immediately. So if, if, if this particular item happens to be one of those, yeah. with the $4,000 price tag... You can sort of you, understand that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I wish the bookseller would be more descriptive, because as a collector, I'm looking at, yeah. is this a, a rare edition? Is it something that's, you know, something that would warrant valent the price? What I bring out in these outrageous uh, price things is there's really no information here, and there's no way to really contact them to say, what is it about? Can I get more pictures? They use a standard cover uh, photo that they probably found online. And so I, my big advice to collectors is always, you know, try to get as much information as you can before you shell out the big bucks. And so that's why I do that segment. But it was great to get a little background on that book from having, you know, two people from that publishing house with me today. Um, before I get into your collection stories, I wanted to share one of my strange collecting stories. Sometimes when you're out and about, um, you're not exactly looking for Doctor Who items, but uh, I happened uh, to stop up three blocks from my home and there was an estate sale. I love estate sales. I usually look for records or books, and in this case, there's a very unusual box in the corner. It had a bunch of these yellow-looking envelopes, and when I got closer, there was a sticker on it that says, The British Broadcasting Corporation, Broadcasting House London, W1 daily continuity report, and there were about 50 of them in the box. So I went through all of them, and I found one that piqued my interest. I paid $1 for this envelope. <laughs> Inside the envelope, and I will post pictures of all of these on the website, is a letter 
uh, from the British Broadcasting Company, uh, company to Mr. R. Carr Esquire with his employee number of 113140. And uh, thanks to the BBC, I was able to locate this gentleman. Uh, he had uh, basically worked for the BBC for over 35 years, retired, and moved to live with his daughter in Aurora, Illinois. So um, apparently these were not supposed to leave the studio. But anyway, this is his employee number. The second letter is completely outlining the new pension scheme for employees <laughs> of the BBC. Um, reaching the age of 60 or 7.5% of your whole salary up to four pounds, whatever, about 400 pounds. And this was really interesting reading. So I found out that Mr. Carr was an electrical and lighting designer. Uh, the other part in here was a BBC internal envelope for internal use only, obviously to return said items. And the piece de resistance, the complete script to Doctor Who in the City of Death. <laughs> Stamped revised final in blue with the metal prongs, um, dated 929-1979. Those are complete scripts. Yes, complete scripts, which by the way, most actors no, no, didn't no, no. get complete they're, scripts. They're not big enough. They're not big enough to be complete scripts. Right. Although the, the story's in there. With lighting, with lighting cues and... Uh, May I have a look? Yeah, please, go ahead. Lighting cues, design clips, and all that wonderful stuff. And uh, the, the other stories I probably should Oh, it's double-sided. Yeah, ah, double-sided. Yes. Okay, that explains why it's not thick enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, of course, Douglas Adams wrote the script for this story, and it's probably one of my favorites. It includes uh, stars such as John Cleese and Julian Glover. Uh, if you know Julian Glover from uh, Indiana Jones, um, he was the, uh, the one of the villains. Um, and of course, the top of the uh, the top of the envelope has the new um, Elstree Studios Daily Continuity Report stamp revised final. And he had a bunch of those. I didn't recognize any of the television programs that were in there, but if I had had the chance to think about it, I would have gone back and bought the whole box and to see what else was in there. But I went through every story, and this was the only one that he worked on Doctor Who. So he just did the one story filmed in Paris and London. Um, would anybody else like to share their story? Oh, come on up. Yeah, we're going to get you up to the microphone here. <laughs> yeah, That's just um, you can just stand right up here. This will pick you up. What's your What's your first name and where are you from? Uh, my first name is um, uh, uh, Karen. I'm from about 10 minutes from here in Lombard, <laughs> Illinois. Fantastic. So actually, um, I don't have a story. This is actually a question for Tony. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it's like you had said, I have two collectibles, and you mentioned one, and then the conversation moved on. And oh. I was curious what the other one was. The other one is the Japanese edition of the Doctor Who and the Daleks novelization. And the weird story behind that is a long time ago when I was still working for uh, Arnold Bloomberg, who uh, David knows quite well, I actually spent a whole month's rent getting all six of them and then ended up having to sell them to Arnold oh. because I just couldn't, I needed the money. Well, so, exactly, so a friend of mine, Jenny Ingersoll, who's been on the uh, podcast, okay. went to Japan last fall, and I said, if you find yourself in the used bookstores, could you look for some of these? And she did, and she came back and she found that one, and I said, oh, well, I can only give you about $100 for that, and she said, take it. I said, why? She said, I, I spent $2 American oh for gosh. it. <laughs> so that, that's my biggest collectible right there. That's brilliant. Excellent. Thank that's you. Brilliant. Thank There's you. about um, six of those books, I think. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I, I, think, I think they're the most wonderful 
Doctor Who translations that have ever been done. Yeah, they're beautiful. Uh, they're absolutely beautiful. Of course, you read them backwards um, because they're Japanese. <laughs> right, and right. They go backwards. And the artwork I, I, is just incredible. I just absolutely <laughs> fell in love uh, with the artwork on it. Um, and each book's obviously got a cover piece of artwork on, but it's also got a great big double page plate, a full color plate at the, at the back. Back? Yeah, front, kind of the front, a, which right. is the back, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is which is gorgeous, uh, and then they have, I think, internal illustrations as well. And the one, the one I particularly like is is the Daleks one, uh, because it's quite obvious that whoever it was did the artwork has never ever ever seen a Dalek, <laughs> and it's just. And obviously, he sort of said to his boss, he said, well, what does a Dalek look like? I said, well, it's kind of like a dustbin with arms. So that's basically what he drew. <laughs> and the weird part is, he did a diagram of it in the book. Yeah? Yeah. There's a yes. okay. cutaway dialogue. Right, right, right. right. like, why would you? <laughs> no, I, I, love, I, love, I love those editions. I think, I think they're tremendous. Is there, is there anyone else that would like to share a story or have a question? Oh, come on up. Yes, thank you. <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> Stephen, where are you from? Uh, Yorkshire originally, but just down the road in Bolingbroke, Chicago, oh, so I can card it whenever I can. Uh, most of my Doctor Who collecting is on the card side, so I have uh, a lot of the uh, various card collections from Cornerstone all the way through Strictly Inc. and things like that. Um, never used to be a big autograph collector, but the Doctor Who autographs I do collect, which is interesting. I was wondering if you had any information on some of the Cornerstone ones, because they made the mistake of putting out blank auto cards a lot yeah. of fakery out there things like yeah. that yeah i think that that that's that is unfortunate that that, that did happen and um yeah i mean it was what information you want i mean i think I, I was actually working with cornerstone at the time um to help them source some of the autographs yeah um and getting some of some of them together for them um i think from memory not for necessarily for the first set, but possibly for the second and third sets, I've, I've got a full set mm. of the autographs that were commissioned for the set, if right. that makes sense. So, because I, I kind of, I got them all sorted for them, so I, I took, like, one of each or whatever as my payment, as it were, because they won't pay me any money. So, <laughs> I would say that as payment. Uh, <laughs> I would say payment. Um, so, I suppose from a collector's perspective, and I haven't got the answer for you at this moment, is it's like, so... What colour pen were they done in? Who kind of were they? Well, Who were yeah. they? What colour pen were they done in? Where on the card were they signed? So was it at the top left, middle, mm -hmm. bottom left, right? Big, small. Big, okay. small. What, what, you know, and therefore those are the only genuine ones yeah. from that set. The only ones I have are fairly inexpensive from a guy on eBay years ago. Yeah. But he had a lot of original stuff. He had printing plates and things like that. So yeah. he had some good stuff. I've, but I've then had, the ones I do is the ones I open for the pack. So, ah, that's a genuine John yes, Wilson. I'm going to pay with exactly. the other one. So I've actually got, I think I've still got it, um, a complete, a, a box of blank photograph right. cards. Yeah, But of course I'm, I'm honest yeah. and decent and I would never misuse that. No, exactly. But that's why I've still got a box of blank photograph <laughs> <laughs> <autograph> cards. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's good yeah, info, yeah, because I always yeah. thought that. There's no point spending lots of money on So those. if you suddenly see, you know, Roger Delgado ones and Bill Hartner right. ones coming out, I think you can probably safely say <laughs> they're fake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I managed to pull three or four. I've got a list slate and Nick Corny. Yeah. Pulled, so I know I've got those. Yeah. There were some nice ones in there. Mike Craze, I think, was one of the yeah, ones they, they did. Yeah, exactly. Some and uh, Nicola Bryant, I remember. And um, yeah. But at least we moved on to Quite ones nice, now where you know they're genuine, they're approved, and pictures and all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Embossed stamped or whatever. That's yeah, good. Is, yeah. Autograph collection collecting can be fraught with 
challenges like that. Very it's much so. And I had, I had a similar issue because I, I have a first Doctor Who annual signed by William Hartnell. And yeah. I did get the uh, signature authenticated because right. he did sign a few. He just signed it and dated it. And uh, the, it's, it's very difficult now, especially now with the Internet. Uh, forgery is on yeah. the rise. So be very careful when you buy an autograph. Um, now we're going to move to uh, we have a giveaway today. Um, as, as many of you collectors know, uh, every year Doctor Who has presented an annual from World Distributors. However, they skipped 1972 and a publishing group, a nonprofit group, produced the unofficial 1972 Doctor Who annual. And these are about to expire. They're from Lulu Press, which is a print-on-demand service. They only charge what the book actually costs. The foreword is by Katie Manning. So if you're looking for something for Katie to sign this weekend, this might be a good thing. Uh, the cost of the book is around $50, but again, it's, you're, you're paying basically for the cost. Uh, Richard Franklin also contributed to this book. And in February of 2020, they will no longer be available. So, um, by the way, between 71 and 73, the world distributors actually uh, got so close together in publications, they decided to skip 72. So to help us with us uh, with our giveaway here, uh, David, if you could pick a number between one and five. What number's mine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, four. Four, and Sam, a number between one and 12. 11. 11. So let's see, so we have, we've picked four and 11. So let's see, row four, seat 11. There's only one person in row four, the lady with the TARDIS hat. <laughs> Come on up. <laughs> You've won. And this is Thank this you. is Brooke from wow. Chicago. She, she's known to me, so she's. Yes. Uh, you've congratulations. It's a fix. It's a fix. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I didn't know what numbers you were picking. That's <laughs> brilliant. You're welcome. Thank can, you can I, so can I just much. mention as well that sure. um, absolutely imminently, if not already. Um, there is another annual, uh, which is the 1987 Doctor Who annual. Yes, and I have copies for display on that tomorrow at yeah. 1 o'clock. I have the collecting panel. I have two copies that arrived at my door yesterday. I've not seen it yet. Yeah. I've not seen it because I've, I've, I've contributed to it, and so is Fraser. Yes. And, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun um, doing a, a thing for the, yeah, the, uh, for the new the, annual there. The gentleman that put this together, a very, uh, a very shy individual, he declined to be interviewed for the podcast, but he sent me a whole bunch of information about why he was doing it. And uh, you can find their Facebook page, you know, the yeah. unofficial annual. And it's a really great book. It's basically true to the original annuals as far as having puzzles, games, stories, and, and wonderful things. Um, I don't believe any copies are for sale here at the convention, but maybe Brooke will let you look through hers. And um, uh, basically, I want to thank everyone for being here today, and thank you for listening to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. The website is DoctorWhoCollectors.com, and our email, if you ever want to email us, is DoctorWhoCollectorsPodcast at gmail.com. A very special thank you to my wonderful guests, David Howe, Samantha Stone, and Tony Witt. Let's hear it for them, please. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And you can listen to the Target Book Club podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. If you're not listening to both podcasts, you need to find another hobby. 
Our next episode will be the November Merchandise Roundup. I'll be rounding up the best of what came out in November. And if you're in the audience today, please get your special Doctor Who Collectors Podcast ribbon, if you don't have one already, to add to your collection. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and keep collecting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to have to dash because I've got instructions to have it brought into the city. about that little temple. That has brought us nothing but good luck. Good luck, you call it. The whole family besotted by that sorceress. Oh, I do wish you'd stop calling Cressida that, and I would call it luck to have the entire Greek army removed from our shores. Peace at last. Though the arrival of the horse is a little puzzling. Well, Cressida probably arranged it in the very fight of it, just, just frighten the Greeks away. Where is Cressida? Well, she's probably down in the square watching him bring in the horse. I don't like her to go wandering around the city on her own. Well, bring her back up here again. She'll get a better view. Katharina, go and look for the sorceress. I don't trust my lovely father. The great priest, yes, the augury says... Yes, yes, yes. question me. No. Very well, then. Go and watch for that girl.